0: Alright, those are the announcements, and so now it's time to move into our sermon, which is the last sermon in this series that we're doing called Kingdom Craft. So what we've been talking about, throughout this year we have been focusing on the command to love our neighbors as the core of God's mission for the church and what he's doing in the world. And in this series we've been talking about how loving our neighbors is the primary way that God calls us to change the world around us. We're programmed to turn to statecraft when we want to change the world. Statecraft is the art of shaping the world through the policies of the government. And so we are just programmed to believe that if we want to do politics, meaning shaping the world and society around us, then we turn to the government. You go to your legislator, you go to your um, political parties, and, the, and that's how we change the world. And we have been, and then. As we go to statecraft as Christians, we want to do it faithfully, and so we go to the Bible and ask it, how are we supposed to practice statecraft? And it doesn't really have much for us. That's why we end up with such a wide range of answers that Christians come up with of how we're supposed to do it. And very faithful Christians will come up with very different answers. It's because actually the Bible is pointing us towards a different means of changing the world, and we've been calling that, for lack of a better term, kingdom craft. So... To recap, the first week we talked about how human beings, we just naturally assume that the problem with the world is that there isn't enough and that people are going to fight over what there is, and so the, the world is naturally a chaotic, dangerous place, and so we need to take control of it. We need to tame it. We need to band together and, form, uh, and, and use force to control things so that we can order the world the way it's supposed to be. This is how our Western political philosophies are written. You can find it in our founding documents as a country. It's also how the Bible accounts the building of the first two cities. Cain built the first city because he was afraid of getting murdered. The people of Babel built the second city because they were afraid of spreading out into the world. And so it's this base assumption that the world there's scarcity in the world and we're going to need to you know, fight for what we can get and take control of things. The Bible does not share that base assumption. The Bible says that God created the world good, that the problem is not with creation, it's not with the world that we live in, it's with the fact that we don't trust that God made the world good, that God provided for us. It says in Genesis 1 that God gave us everything we need to spread out into the world and flourish, and God reaffirms that promise throughout the Old Testament, and Jesus reaffirms it in his ministry, that God made the world good and he provides for us. So the problem isn't the world, the problem is people not trusting God. And so, for me, it's a pretty vivid example that I've used several times, is the, paper, uh, the toilet paper shortage of 2020, The supply chain for toilet paper was one of the most secure supply chains we had, and yet we had a shortage, not because there was scarcity, but because people panicked and they hoarded. And so we ended up with problems that were created simply by human anxiety. And the Bible says that the real problems in the world are created by us. It's by our mentality and our anxiety and our lack of trust in God. And so in the second sermon, we talked about how God gave the law of Moses to Israel as a way to demonstrate to the world that his grace can be trusted, that you can actually trust in God's grace in the real world, and God will show up. Because in the law of Moses, they had no standing army, they had no central authority, they, they shut down the economy at the drop of a hat, at the hint of a holiday, everybody stopped working, and everybody got the day off, which is not a way to build a strong economy. And yet... God took care of them. As long as they were faithful to God, he would take care of them throughout all of that. But the law of Moses also told them to take God's generosity and share it with others. And so they were commanded to free slaves and forgive debts and return land. And and you couldn't practice the Sabbath personally. You had to practice it. You had to give all of your staff the day off, right? You couldn't take the day off yourself and have your servants make up the slack. You had to give everybody the day off. And so they were meant to trust in God's grace and share God's grace to prove to the world that in your lived reality, you can actually make real world decisions based on the belief that God will show up and he will. The sermon after that, we talked about how Israel was really no better at trusting in God's grace than any of the rest of us. And so they made all of the same mistakes that we make all the time. We went through their history and looked at the ways that they made small compromises. They didn't trust that God was going to give them enough, or they didn't trust that what God had given them was enough. That's another common one, that we judge enough based on what we want. And we don't trust that if God hasn't given that to me, maybe I don't need that. And so they started making little compromises, they became bigger and bigger problems until eventually they they were completely the opposite of the kind of society God told them to create. And so when and then so they go into exile, and then when they come back, they've learned the long lesson, the, the wrong lesson. Then they come back and they're suspicious of others and they blame everybody else for their failures and they become xenophobic and hold everybody off at a hand's distance, an arm's length. So then last week we talked about how Jesus steps on the scene in this kind of this kind of atmosphere, and he reaffirms for everyone in his preaching that God's grace can be trusted, that you can, uh, that God takes care of his people, and he is generous, and you can make real world decisions off of his grace. The Beatitudes are all about that. Blessed are all these kinds of people that normally you would not consider blessed. Why? Because in each one of them, God will take care of them. They're blessed because God will take care of them. And he says, "Remember, you have a generous Father in heaven who gives good gifts. Therefore, do unto others as you would have them do unto you." Right? The golden rule is rooted in the idea that God takes care of His people. And then we talked about how, when Jesus confronted the Roman powers, and he says, um, and, and he's confronting their power, their violence, their ability to kill him, he doesn't confront them with an alternative power. He says, "I," he says, "My kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, we would have been fighting." But I came to testify about the truth. Because ultimately, Jesus doesn't meet one kind of power with a different kind of power to try and win. Jesus meets that power with the truth that there is no power that can overcome the grace of God. So Jesus stands up there and says, I'm going to testify to the truth. So go ahead. Do your worst. The kingdoms of this world can do anything they want. They they can use their utmost power to destroy me and see if they can overwhelm God's grace. And in the end, Jesus proved that you can trust God's grace even to the point of death on a cross, and God's grace will still win out because he raised Jesus from death to everlasting life. And so Jesus resisted every effort, every temptation to twist his mission into some kind of um, combat by power, and instead he simply testified to the truth that the battle is already won, that we aren't actually a threat to God or his plan or his grace that it's not a question of whether God will win, it's a question of whether we will participate with him in that winning or whether we'll make ourselves an obstacle to it. That's where we left off last week, and so today we're moving into the last section of this, which is the the New Testament and the question of what role does the church play in continuing Jesus' testimony to the truth? What are we supposed to be doing in our culture today as Christians If the Bible doesn't tell us how to vote and how to participate in elections and things like that, what does it teach us to do? And the first thing I want to do is I want to give us, I want to recalibrate our mindset of the role that Christians play in their communities, because we tend to get pulled into one of two options, and neither one of them are great. In a world that tells us that the only way to do politics, the only way to change the world is by participating in the government, we choose one of two options, partisanship, or neutrality. So there are churches, there are partisan churches where you go, and they may never actually say it because they don't want to lose their tax-exempt status, but you get the distinct feeling that if I don't vote with this party, I, they don't think I'm a real Christian, right? That it is obvious that anybody who really believed the Bible would vote with this party, or would support, th- support this candidate, or would support this cause. And, and that's the sense that we have hitched uh, the gospel to these particular political forces in our world. You know what I'm talking about. You, you've experienced like churches where you just you have to be a part of that. Mo- like if you go to that church and you don't support those policies or those politics, then something's off. You're not quite there. You're not quite a Christian by their their perspective. And this happens on both ends, both ends of the spectrum. The problem with that, well, one major problem is that there are. Uh, In our world, um, political parties are coalitions, right? And so no matter which cause you're choosing, you're going to choose a cause that's a coalition. And so uh, they're trying to keep together enough people to win an election. And so it's a package deal where you have to have something to make everybody happy, which means you're always going to have something that is, if it's not contrary to the Bible, it's at least in addition to the gospel, right? Because you have to get enough people. So if you're going to sign on with that party, you're going to sign on with everything they support, regardless of whether it's, I mean, you're, you're supporting their whole platform. It's a, a coalition platform. So what that means is if you tell people you have to follow, following Jesus means being part of this group, then you're saying you have to have Jesus and this other stuff that's not in the Bible, this other stuff that God never told us anything about. You have to. So we're adding, we're saying you need Jesus and this other stuff. And I, I, I'm, I don't want to do that personally. That's that we, you need Jesus. You don't need the other stuff. And so we end up packaging Jesus with other things, and, and then there are people who will say, "I absolutely don't want those extras." And so if I have to get those extras to get Jesus, I'm just not going to get Jesus. Right? That's the danger when you say you need Jesus and, is that people will reject Jesus because of the other things they get in the package deal. On the other hand, what we, what we will instead try to do is we will try to remain neutral. And this is where we, we, we don't talk about anything political, and if we do bring it up, we make sure to hit both sides equally. And we just try to avoid the whole thing because we want to focus on Jesus and we don't want to lose anybody for all those political reasons. The problem with that, the problem with neutrality is, first of all, the Bible isn't neutral. The Bible talks about a lot of things about how we structure our world. And so if you try to remain neutral, you have to say less than what the Bible says. Being partisan, you say more than what the Bible says. Being neutral, you say less. Um, and we, the mentality that I, the, the buzzword now for that neutrality mentality, <laughs> that rhymed, I didn't mean that, um, is Exile. I've heard this buzzword a lot. We are exiles. Christians live as exiles in the world. And so we leave the world to the kingdoms of this world. And we're just focused on getting people back to their home. We're getting, we just want to get back home. This, land, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Right? And there are even verses that we can use to back that up. So Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. That kind of feels like it fits with this exile mentality. There are even a couple of places where letters are addressed to Christians, and it refers to them like exiles. So James wrote his letter to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, and Peter wrote his first letter to God's elect, scattered throughout the province of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and bithynia and so in this exile mentality, it's like this diagram that I showed you last week of the earthly kingdoms are down here, and the kingdom of God is up there, and our goal is to get people from this king, these kingdoms into those kingdoms. But this, this plane belongs to the kingdoms, and so we either stay out of, if we're exiles, then we stay out of what they're doing, and we just focus on getting people into the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a couple of problems with this. Well, there's one main problem, and it's, it's, it's a distortion of what the Bible's actually saying. First of all, the Bible doesn't call Christians exiles. Now, there's those two places that I showed you in James and Peter, but there's something to keep in mind about James and Peter, because there are a whole sermon series. If you go for a, look for a sermon series on 1 Peter, it's all about exiles and how Christians are exiles. Here's the problem. There's a, there's a passage in the New Testament where it tells us that Peter, James, and Paul divided up the Christian world in terms of their ministries. Paul took the ministry to Gentiles. James and Peter took the ministry to Jews. There's a, based on that and the internal evidence from those letters, there were a lot more Jews in the early church than we, than we often think there were. Peter and James are not t- calling all Christians exiles. They're writing to Christian Jews who were literally in exile. Because the early Christians didn't have the mentality that the kingdom is up there and we are going up there. When we meet with the kingdom, it is not because we go to where the kingdom is. Look at what Jesus preached. He said, the uh, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. He said, truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. At the end of the story of the Bible, it doesn't, it, the story doesn't end with all of God's people going up to heaven. It actually ends this way. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth that passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. We don't go to heaven. I mean, in, in overall, the, the people of God don't go to heaven. Heaven comes down to earth. Now we do go to those of us who go to sleep before the kingdom comes go to heaven. But ultimately, the story ends here. We are not the ones who are just passing through, according to the Bible. We are not the ones who are just passing through. We'll just pass through heaven on our way back to the restored earth. But this is ultimately where God made us for, and when he redeems it all, this will be where we spend eternity, on a new earth. So we're not just passing through. The goal is to bring the kingdom here. So a more biblical mentality would be something like what Paul says in Philippians. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that kind of sounds like an exile mentality, except... You're thinking about citizenship in the modern way we think of it, as opposed to the way it worked in a city like Philippi. So the Roman Empire, they paid their soldiers, first of all, with salt. That's where the word salary comes from. But ultimately with land. Soldiers got land. But here's the thing. You do not want to surround your capital city with retired soldiers. Because retired soldiers get bored with farming and they go back to what they know how to do. So you want them doing that as far away as possible. So what would happen is, when they won a battle and they had this successful army, they would give them land far away from Rome. So, And they called these colonies. And so Philippi was a Roman colony. It was full of Roman citizens, and it had a Roman-style government, and it was, it was, they all were citizens of Rome, but there was no assumption they would ever go back to Rome. In fact, the goal was for them to stay in Philippi. First of all, because they don't want all the retired soldiers coming home and deciding their general should be king, which they did a lot anyway. But also because then they put them out in Greece, then you've got this Roman city city spreading Roman culture and Roman influence in Philippi and helping to keep Greece loyal to the Roman Empire. So when he says your citizenship is in heaven, he's not saying your your home is in heaven, that you're going to live in heaven any more than they were ultimately going to live in Rome. He's saying your citizenship is from heaven and you're here building a colony as opposed to being citizens from Rome building a colony. You're not here to build, you're not in Philippi to build a little Rome. You're in Philippi to build a little heaven. You are a colony of heaven on earth. That's why he doesn't say our citizenship is in heaven and so we can't wait to get back there. He says our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there. The Savior's coming here. So the biblical mentality for us is not that we are exiles who are just trying to get get through our time here and save as many other people as possible and then just get to the good place. Christians are not exiles passing through. We are colonists expanding the kingdom of God. We have a mission while we're here. And so if you look at this mentality, this is how, how we tend to think of it, and then the goal is to get people from here up there, but the biblical model actually looks more like this. The kingdoms of God and the earthly kingdoms, they coexist. And the kingdom of God has its way of doing things, and the earthly kingdoms have their way of doing things. And our mission is to move that wall over. Not, not to try and conquer earthly kingdoms and make them Christian, but to move, expand, the influence, expand the, power, the influence of the kingdom of God to get people to turn to the power of the gospel rather than the power of compulsion and violence, to get people to serve Jesus instead of serving the powers of this world, because that's what will actually change people, and that's what will actually change the world. Now, the Bible tells us we're never going to succeed in pushing the wall all the way over ourselves. What it tells us is that ultimately one day Jesus is going to come, and he's going to tear down that wall and leave nothing but the kingdom of God. But ultimately, our mission is to, bring, is to share the kingdom of God with the world, to bring people into this different way of doing things that is better, that is more compassionate, that is more faithful, that is more trusting in God. Because ultimately, the problem is a heart problem. The problem is with human beings. And no amount of, of force, no laws can change human nature. Only Jesus can do that. And so the real hope for this world is changed people, not changed laws. There is still a role, as the Bible says, for governments to restrain human sin in this world. But they're never going to cure it. They're never going to get at the cure. Only the kingdom can actually really change people, can actually get at the, the root of the problem. And so we see this happening in the early church when we see descriptions of how they lived. This is how the first Christian church of Jerusalem worked. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So what you see there in that community is a community that loves each other radically and faithfully because they're not worried about running out. They're not worried about, about competition. They're not worried about being defeated. They believe in God's grace. Because that's the thing. this is not communism. That's one of the things that comes up a lot when you look at the early church and, and um Founders of communism would often point to this. But they're not not in that scarcity mentality where they have to use force to take people's possessions and redistribute them. People are just being genuinely generous with each other because they're not worried. Because they're willing to share because they're they're not selfish. And because they see what God is doing. And as they live in that way and as they build this colony of heaven in Jerusalem, people are joining it. People want to be a part of it because they want to have what God gives us when he transforms us, when he creates communities of transformed people. In Acts 4, it says, All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them in them all that there were no needy persons among them For, uh, for from time to time, those who owned land or households, or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. God's grace was powerfully among them. God's grace supported them so that they could be generous with each other, and it would be okay, and it would work out. It's interesting. It just occurred to me. I remember somebody theorizing. There's another place, we heard about it today, where Paul takes up a gathering to help the churches in Jerusalem. And I heard a theory that the reason why they needed to take the gathering, that take the the, um, the the collection to Jerusalem, is because the Jerusalem church had been so unwise with these policies that they went poor. They got overcome with excitedness and they they made bad financial decisions. They became poor out of their zeal. And I think that's the wrong mentality. I mean, it says that God's grace was with them. But remember that God God doesn't give his grace to me. He gives his grace to us. And so God provided for the church in Jerusalem through what he gave to Jerusalem and also through what he gave to the other churches when Jerusalem went through a time of famine. So you have the witness of not just what the church was doing in Jerusalem for each other, but then also the way the churches around the Roman Empire supported them when they went through a time of lack. The gospel doesn't say that you're never going to go through a famine time. What the gospel says is he gives enough to us to the church that we can take care of each other and that we can help each other through those times. And to show you just the full political ramifications of this, this absolutely is a culturally, societally changing behavior. Look at this this passage we don't talk about very often in 1 Corinthians where Paul, um, there are a lot of things the Corinthian church does wrong and, and one of them is the way they're involved in the court system. It says, if any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more are the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned by the in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of the unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. What he's saying is that at the point where two Christians have to go to the law courts to get their dispute settled, there's been a failure there's been a failure of, of our participation in the kingdom because that doesn't need to happen in the kingdom of God, right? What is the what? That's when we rely on some power that the government has because the gospel doesn't have that power to reconcile us and to bring us together. That we need something more than what Jesus has to offer because we can't get along with each other. Now, I'm not saying it's a sin for you to... Um, lodge a, you know, to, to go to court with another Christian necessarily, because I think this is kind of like with divorce, where we may have a tendency to blame the person who files paperwork, and the person who files may not be the person who created the problem. But when we get to a place where we need the courts to settle disputes in the church, that's a breakdown in our allegiance to the gospel, because the gospel is supposed to reconcile us, Right? What good thing do the courts have that the gospel doesn't have that we need to turn to them? The gospel is supposed to be able to walk us through reconciling conflict. It is supposed to change the way we govern our relationships with each other. Notice what he says. Isn't it better to be, let yourself be cheated Than to stand before the courts of this world and fight for what you want, just like everybody else, as if there is no grace of God. When we take that same mentality and we act like if I don't get this thing, there's like I need to fight desperately for this thing because without it, there's no hope. That denies the gospel. So he's saying it would be better to just let yourself be cheated than to actually give a, a contrary testimony in the courts. That's a hard thing to hear, and there's a whole conversation we can have about how you live this out, but the main point that I want to make is that the gospel is supposed to change the way we participate in our society, and it's supposed to change the way we make very real-life decisions, and we are supposed to change the world by a different way other than going to court, other than going to the government to change it for us. So how do we change the world? We spread the kingdom of God by sharing God's grace generously with others. Now, we don't have time to go through all the citations that, uh, where you could find these three things that I'm going to tell you. I have them in your notes if you'd like to track them down. But as I've studied the New Testament, I've found three themes for what the apostles tell Christians to do. Number one, love your families. It's a little bit difficult for us to see the distinction because we live in a world where families have been, where Christian family behavior has been the expectation for like 1,700 years, or at least set, held up as an ideal. So it's hard for us to see the difference. But know that when, when Paul told um, fathers to love their children and spouses to love and to submit to each other, that was in a world where the father of the family had the power of life and death over the entire family over his wife, his kids, his servants. This was a time in Roman society when there were 130 men for every 100 women. That's weird, right, that's wrong. It should be about 50, if it's natural, if you don't interfere, there's about 51% women in a normal society. They had 130 men for every 100 women. They did a survey, uh, they reconstructed 800 Roman families, only six of them had more than one daughter because women weren't valuable, and so they would just expose them. They would abandon them and let them die because they wanted men. The church came along and said, you should love, genuinely love your family members. You should be committed to loving all your family members. So they not only loved their spouses and raised all their children, but they actually went out and picked up those babies that they could find before they died and raised them themselves. So one of the funny things is the the, uh, the Pagans couldn't find enough women to marry, and the Christians couldn't find enough men because they had so many women that were raised up in the church and then flocked to the church. Same with children and slaves because it was the place where they were genuinely loved. Another recurring theme in the in the letters is to love your neighbors. This is a completely contrary thing in their culture, in a culture that was radically divided by, uh, they had, they had um, race wars, they had um, social wars between different classes, they had slave rebellions, they had all kinds of division, and, um, and they just did not love each other. They did, so when a plague would come through, everybody would leave. If they were, if they were healthy, they would just abandon everybody else and leave because they had no responsibility to each other. And pity was considered a a character flaw. Um, But Christians were taught to love each other and to love their neighbors and to care for those who were in need, whether they knew them or not, whether they were fellow Christians or not. And finally, and most importantly, and the most repeated, is to love your congregation, love your brothers and sisters. Every single letter written to a church in the New Testament talks about loving each other within the church. You know how many times the New Testament tells us to love God? Once. Three times if you count the same story being told three different times. You know how many times it tells us to love your neighbors? Four times. Six if you count one story being told three times. You know how many times it tells us to love each other within the congregation? I've counted 32 Because a church that loves each other for no other reason than the fact that we all love Jesus, it cannot be explained except by the grace of God. A group of people that have nothing else in common but Jesus and they love each other, that is radical. That is hard to explain if Jesus is not in it. And that is one of the most powerful testimonies the church has. And here's the thing, you may feel like like loving each other is not as powerful as voting or getting people in office or getting laws passed or things like that, but throughout history, what we've seen is that the love of the church has been the most powerful cause for good in history. The early church conquered the Roman Empire simply by sharing the grace of God. The day before Pentecost, there were fifty to maybe two hundred Christians. Three hundred years later, there were 30, they were upwards of thirty million. They were the majority population in the Roman Empire. And you know how they did that? They didn't have government support yet. It wasn't through spectacular preaching, because one of the things we know is that preaching itself does not convert anybody, especially not from one religion to another. You do not go from pagan to Christian because you heard a sermon. If, if, you, if, you, come, if you answer the invitation of a preacher, that means that you've had encounters with people beyond that. But one sermon, just hearing a street preacher does not do it. We also know it wasn't evangelism, an organized evangelism program because of all the hundreds of documents we have from the early Church, there is not one document about evangelism. It wasn't something they needed to talk about. They didn't have plans. It just happened. It also wasn't from really big, compelling worship because for two of those 300 years, they did not allow outsiders in the church. They stationed deacons at the door to keep out non-church members because of persecutions. So how did they grow the church from like 200 people to 30 million and become the major population in Rome, in the Roman Empire? It was by loving their families, which was a huge spike in population. By loving their neighbors, which was also a huge growing factor, especially every time the plague came through, there were fewer pagans and more Christians, and for two reasons. One is because if you care for each, well, the root of both of them is if you care for each other, if you get basic medical care, your chances of surviving a plague go up by about 60%. So, Christians take care of each other. More Christians survive than pagans. But also, Christians were taking care of pagans. They were the only ones taking care of pagans. So the, the pagans that got cared for by Christians had a 60% better chance of living. And how do you think they felt about the Christians coming out of it? Well, they liked Christians, And so the way Christians loved each other and the way they loved their community drastically strengthened the church. And finally, as they were a loving community that loved across cultural barriers and brought people together, people flocked to that kind of community. They were willing to give up every social connection they had, because often they'd have to give up every social connection they had when they became a Christian for the kind of community provided by the church. And that was so powerful that it converted over half of the Roman Empire before it ever became legal. Here's the last thing I want to tell you. This is not just something that happened 2,000 years ago. It is something that is happening today. See, our anxiety mindset, our fear of others has caused us to accept some really bad statistics. There are a lot of statistics out there that we hear that are actually not very accurate, and so I want to I share with you some more accurate statistics from a more reputable source who happens not to be a Christian. And what we see from these statistics, which I know is a very inspiring way to end a sermon, but hear me out, the church continues to grow and change the world through the power of God's grace. First of all, everybody agrees the church is growing by millions in Latin America. The church is growing by millions in Africa. The single highest density of church-going people right now is sub-Saharan Africa. Their church is growing in Asia, even in places where it's illegal. So there is encouraging news happening pretty much all around the world. But we also know, right, that the church is failing in the West, right? The church is really failing in Europe and in America. Well, let's look at that. I want to show you, here's the first chart. Now, those are a bunch of countries. You probably can't read them. You don't necessarily need to read them. Those are rates of percentages of atheists in a series of countries, okay? The tallest one there is China, where they are legally atheist, like the like, uh, officially atheist. Those orange countries, Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, Croatia, Georgia, Czech Republic, Poland, what do they have in common? They're all former Soviet republics, where atheism was the state religion for over 70 years. Look at the impact that had on the level of atheists in their country. Not much at all. Seventy years of oppression against Christianity, and it had almost no impact. That's pretty startling. Turns out that Christianity is actually very resilient in the midst of persecution. Now let's look at, this is kind of a weird thing to put up here. But here is, let's talk about Western Europe. This is fertility rates in Western Europe based on how often you attend church. How many kids do you have based on how often you attend church? Okay. So weird statistic, right? But let me show you. Once you add this line, it becomes important. That's the replacement level. If you are below that line, your population is shrinking. If you are above that line, your population is growing. Guess what the only population that is above reproducing above replacement level is in Europe? Practicing Christians. Even practicing Muslims are not replacing their population. Add to that the rates of evangelism in Western Europe, and if this model holds, then in 100 years, the uh, practicing Christians will be the majority population in Western Europe which is exactly the kind of things that happened in the early church. Now let's talk about the rates, uh, the uh, America. This is a chart uh, of the um, rate of religious adherence in America from 1776 to 2005. Anybody have a problem with those rates? Any objections, any issues with that? Does that pretty much, raise your hand if that looks like what you'd expect to see about Christianity in America. that seem right? Yeah? Yeah? The problem with this chart is it's backwards. <laughs> in 1776, a woman was more likely to, have a ch- to get pregnant out of wedlock than to be part of a church. And, in fact, what's happened is with religious freedom allowing churches to change and to uh, renovate themselves. And if a church starts to go the wrong way, people can break off and form their own church. That has led to a a remarkable vitality in the church in America. And, actually, all the statistics saying that the church is going away, that young people are leaving the church, all these scary statistics, that's actually telling us that, that Christians are leaving mainline churches. But evangelical churches are growing. The point of all of this, is, I mean, we—it should be enough for us to know that God is good and God is in control for us to be optimistic. But you don't just have to be blindly faithful to believe that God is opti- to believe that God's kingdom is advancing and to be optimistic. Actually, the numbers show that God's kingdom is advancing. So our mission as Christians is to trust God's grace. To faithfully share God's grace by loving our families, by loving our neighbors, and by loving our congregations, and then to resist the urge to wield the power of the world. Because you know what the difference between, the main difference between mainline churches and evangelical churches is? It's not their theology, because that is a major difference, but mainline churches were declining long before they changed their theology to become very liberal. The difference is that mainline churches have always been a part of the political establishment. They have always sought to be respectable, to, be in, to hold the levers of power. They have always sought to be uh, in with the decision-making, and they've sought political power. And what happens is, and this is what's actually happening in Europe, because because they have official religions in Europe, they only have mainline churches, Europeans are not less likely to believe. They are less likely to want to go to the churches that are available to them. Because what happens is when churches decide that we're just going to be another special interest group, we're just going to be involved in the political system, we're not good at that. Because we don't actually have anything to offer there. What we have to offer is something much more important and something much more powerful, and that is the truth of God's grace and the fact that as we trust in Jesus Christ, people can be changed and communities can be changed and the world can be changed, and the world has been changed by this over and over and over again throughout our history, and it is continuing to be changed by this today, and it will continue to be changed by this every day until Jesus comes back and sets everything fully and finally right. Amen? That is what we have to offer, the kingdom of God, the grace of God, the power to change people. And we offer that to people by loving our families, by loving our neighbors, by loving our communities, by loving our congregations, and through patience. Because God plays the long game. He plays the long game because he wants as many people to be saved as possible. He's not in a rush, which means we don't need to be in a rush. We need to be faithful faithful. Because the question is not whether God is going to win. The question is, are you going to be on his side when he does? Are you going to, it's not, I'm not telling you that if you practice kingdom craft, you can, help, you can save the world. What I'm saying is if you practice kingdom craft if you're faithful to God, you can be a part of God saving the world because he's going to save the world with or without me. I decide whether I'm going to be a part of that and I want to be a part of that. And I hope that every single one of you want to be a part of that as well. Amen? I'm going to ask the praise team to come up and I'm going to ask you Every time we hear the gospel preached, God um, gives us an opportunity to respond. And so hopefully, as you've been listening to this, you felt God tug on your heart, or you felt a, a choice that you need to make. Maybe that choice is to give your life to Jesus in the first place. Maybe you have not given your life to his grace and you have just been, just been making do with the power that this world has to offer, which is not great, and you want to be able to trust in God's grace. Today is the best day to make that decision. So I'd encourage you, if you're considering that, you can either come forward during the song if you're ready to do it. You can talk to me or Pastor Rachel after the service, so you can fill out one of the Connect cards in the seat back in front of you. Maybe you've given your life to Jesus, but you realize that you have been sucked back into that anxiety mentality. You've been sucked back into the feeling that you need to fight and you need to take control and you haven't been trusting in God's grace. Today is the best day for you to recommit to trusting God's grace, to loving your family and your neighbors and your congregation and changing the world through God's power. You don't have to do that alone either. We are a congregation of people who are sharpening each other who are coming together to share the burdens of this difficult but important road that we walk. And so we'd love for you to become more connected with the church. Through your Connect card, you can sign up for Connect class where we talk about membership, or on the Grow card, you can sign up for one of our small group classes, or sorry, one of our small groups. Um, I forgot, and I think this is important, so let me say one more thing. Um, I've experienced the power of the kingdom of God recently, In a lot of ways, Um, Casey and I have had a very challenging year, and this church has come around us in some amazing ways. But I got an especially good window into this recently. Um, On Friday, I was asleep, trying to get over a cold, and I finally got woken up by my phone. And what I discovered then was that there had been a, a medical situation going on in one of the families in our parenting group. And by the time I became aware of it, the group had already prayed for them. They had figured out meal trains. They had come together to take care of it. And I find out this has actually been happening for multiple situations in our parenting small group for the past couple of months. Like all we had to do was get them on WhatsApp and it just went nuts with people just taking care of each other and loving each other. And that's the kind of community that we want to be. And that's the kind of community that God wants us to be. And that's the kind of community that shares God's love and changes the world. So if you'd like to be a part of that kind of a community, we would encourage you to sign up for one of our small groups or sign up for our Connect class. And finally... The last option that you have on one of those cards, there's a serve card where you can give to others. You can serve others. And we have several ways to do that to serve the community or to serve the church. One of the things you can do is you can hang out after to find out more about BBS. But I want you to take a moment to consider what is the next step that God is putting in front of you. It might be something that I didn't talk about. And I want you to take this as an opportunity to say yes to what God is asking you to do. Let's stand and sing